What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, Pete's dead. For real this time. And I have new music. And I've got a whole new music format that's just going to blow your mind. I'm also freezing cold. We got a lot to get caught up on. This little intro monologue might be a little bit long. First off, I sprayed the basement again. There was too many of Pete's family just all over the place, and it was getting to be too much. I was getting creeped out and getting the willies, even though I love those little guys. I love their spunk. I love their attitude. I love that they made themselves at home here, eating chips on the couch, watching whatever they feel like on TV, but it was getting too creepy. So Friday, while my oldest daughter had a surprise birthday party, I hid in the basement And I mopped, and I swept, and I wiped everything down, and I also sprayed like crazy for the insects. This time, there was no regrets. I cast my blood on the stone of reality, and that reality is I need to have a basement studio slash office that uh, I can actually be in without getting the creeps. So I did that all Friday night. I have not seen a Pete or any of Pete's family members since. I've seen their corpses, but this time I don't feel bad. With a steely look on my face, I swept them into the dustbin to be gone forever. Also, I've found more public domain music to just play lazily in the background as I read. Taking away from uh, the harsh consonants and high-pitched noises I make while reading so that you can uh, relax and lull yourself into uh, just enjoying the story without me ruining it. It might even cover up some of the cat noises and other things that happen around here. And lastly, I spent two and a half hours, maybe even more than that, sitting out in the freezing cold while my youngest daughter played softball. And she did amazingly well, and I was super proud of her. She knew nothing about softball, doesn't know the rules, doesn't know how to play, has never really caught anything with a mitt before. Uh, She's like me, and she knows nothing about sports. Uh, But she joined up for some random reason, Uh, not even any friends being on the team or anything like that. Uh, She just joined up, and she wasn't very good on her first day. So she practiced and practiced and practiced, and I practiced with her, and uh, she got really good. And so today was her first real game. It was a doubleheader which is a sports thing that I'm not very aware of. And she did really good. She was getting to first and second base. She even went across home three times tonight. Uh, And that was great to watch, but I was freezing like crazy because it's still pretty cold where I live. And uh, 
and dark. They didn't turn on any of the lights, which I thought was weird. And since they're kids, they're not professionals. The game drags on forever when no one ever gets struck out. And that was horrible. I even said to my ex-wife at one point, who is sitting next to me, uh, this is what purgatory is like. Watching a game where the sun never really completely sets and it goes on forever and you're always kind of freezing. So I came home and I cranked up the heat and I got things ready in the little podcast studio in the basement uh, with the heat and uh, thought for a moment about Sweet Pete and how, with a heavy heart, I had to, for the good of the podcast, finish him off. Uh, And now here I am, still freezing, bundled up in two sweaters and some slippers, and uh, now I'm ready to read to you, so I hope you enjoy. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you. And maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds, the cars outside the window, the creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Tonight, I will continue reading to you Chapter 5 of The Iron Heel by Jack London. In our previous chapter, Slaves of the Machine, We watched as Avis talked to rich people. She got a whole chapter dedicated to herself, which was kind of nice. Didn't learn much about her as a person, but we learned that talking to rich people is very frustrating. Uh, We learned that Ernest is literally like Jesus, and she wants to take care of him. And uh, if I remember correctly, that priests are like babes in the woods when it comes to dealing with uh, poverty. They've just never seen it before, and it drives them crazy. So we continue on with chapter five. Philomaths. I want to say Philomath, but apparently that's not how to pronounce it. Uh, To double check so I don't make a complete fool of myself, I tried to go to dictionary.com and listen to the pronunciation of Philomaths. uh, And the word is not on there, which is very strange. So I wound up typing in how to pronounce Philomaths, and I wound up going to a shady website called howtopronounce.com, where they give you three options to listen to. Um, One is weird, uh, another one is a computer saying it, and the other one is just a random woman who uploaded her own pronunciation of the word Philomath. So... They even give you the option to record it in your own voice, and they don't filter it. So here is the computer's pronunciation of Philomath. 
Philomaths. And here is the woman. Philomaths. Uh, it might not sound that much different. They might sound like a female and male version of a computer voice, but uh, with my headphones on the actual web browser, it's definitely a woman saying it really weird into the mic, which is really awkward and very strange, and I really want to get in there and start finding words and adding my own pronunciations. I found a flaw in their system, and I want to exploit it. But on to Chapter 5, Philomaths. Ernest was often at the house, which is really annoying. Can you imagine if you still lived with your parents in junior high? Or how old is this woman? I have no idea. We know nothing about her. Doesn't matter. She wakes up in the morning and she tries to get some cereal to start her day. And there is your parents' friend Steve around just reading whatever random weird magazines and then like talking at you and that's what this woman has to deal with on a regular basis now nor was it my father merely nor the controversial dinners that drew him there even at that time I flattered myself that I played some part in causing his visits and it was not long before I learned the correctness of my surmise for never was there such a lover as Ernest ever heard. <laughs> Gross. His name is Ernest, like honestly intentioned, and then Everhard, and he's a lover. His gaze and his hand clasp grew firmer and steadier. If that were possible, and the question that had grown from the first in his eyes grew only more imperative. My impression of him the first time that I saw him had been unfavorable. Then I had found myself attracted toward him. That's a weird way of describing that. Next came my repulsion when he so savagely attacked my class and me. After that, as I saw that he had not maligned my class, and that the harsh and bitter things he said about it were justified, I had drawn closer to him again. He became my oracle. Hmm. For me, he tore the sham from the face of society and gave me glimpses of reality that were as unpleasant as they were undeniably true. As I have said, there was never such a lover as he. Ugh. This is a situation where the jokes are coming too quickly. And this podcast is a family-family podcast. I can't tell the jokes I want to tell. Uh, it's a lot like my friend Corey, whose parents divorced when he was very young. Uh, his dad moved on to another woman and... Years later, uh, when he was in his mid-30s, uh, that woman had passed away from cancer. And the dad, unable to be alone, started kind of rolling up on uh, Corey's old mom. And he started showing up for holidays and stuff. And there was a Christmas where Corey and his brothers went to the mom's house to bring presents and open presents and have a dinner and all that kind of stuff. And dad was there. And Corey walked in and said, Dad! And Corey's dad said, Yeah, that's right. Merry Christmas. And Corey 
which is my favorite line out of knowing this person for so many years, said, I have to sit down. The jokes are coming too quickly. <laughs> That's what I'm dealing with right now. With this. Ugh. I almost want to make a side podcast of just the stuff I want to say. As I have said, there was never such a lover as he. <laughs> no girl could live in a university town till she was 24 and not have had love experiences I have been made love to by beardless sophomores and gray professors and by the athletes and the football giants. But not one of them made love to me as Ernest did. His arms were around me before I knew. His lips were on mine before I could protest or resist. Before his earnestness, Conventional maiden dignity was ridiculous. He swept me off my feet by the splendid, invincible rush of him. He did not propose. He put his arms around me and kissed me and took it for granted that we should be married. There was no discussion about it. The only discussion, and that arose afterwards, was when we should be married. It was unprecedented. It was unreal. Yet, in accordance with Ernest's test of truth, it worked. I trusted my life to it, and fortunate was the trust. Yet, during those first days of our love, fear of the future came often to me when I thought of the violence and the impetuosity of his lovemaking. The violence of his lovemaking? Yeah. Yet... Such fears were groundless. No woman was ever blessed with a gentler, tender husband. His gentleness and his violence on his part was a curious blend similar to the one in his carriage of awkwardness and ease. That slight awkwardness, exclamation point, he never got over it. And it was delicious. His behavior in our drawing room reminded me of a careful bull in a china shop. This is exactly what I needed to spice the podcast up. I was hoping for this. I mean, with a name like Ernest Everhard, something like this has got to happen. It was at this time that vanished my last doubt of the completeness of my love for him, a subconscious doubt at most. It was at the Philomath Club, a wonderful night of battle, wherein Ernest bearded the master's bearded? That's really what they say. Ernest bearded the masters in their lair. <laughs> now the Philomath Club was the most select on the Pacific Coast. It was the creation of Miss Brentwood, an enormously wealthy old maid. And it was her husband uh, and family and toy. Its members were the wealthiest in the community and the strongest-minded of the wealthy, with, of course, a sprinkling of scholars to give it an intellectual tone. The Philomath had no clubhouse. It was not that kind of club. Once a month, its members gathered at some one of their private houses to listen to a lecture. The lecturers were usually, though, not always hired. If a chemist in New York made a new discovery in, say, radium, all his experiences across the continent were paid. And as well, he received a princely fee for his time, the same with a returning explorer. 
from the polar regions or the latest literary or artistic success. No visitors were allowed, while it was the Philomath's policy to permit none of its discussions to get into the papers. Thus, great statesmen, and there had been such occasions, were able fully to speak their minds. I spread before me a wrinkled letter, written to me by Ernest twenty years ago, and from it I copy the following. Oh, by the way, I totally skipped over the foreword on this book, which talks about how all of this that we're reading are part of the earnest letters that I talked about earlier. Um, and so I don't really want to go back and redo that. But here we're getting a taste of her in the future, talking about her lover, Ernest Everhard. Your father is a member of the Philomath, so you are able to come. Therefore, come next Tuesday night. I promise you that you will have the time of your life. In your recent encounters, you failed to shake the masters. If you come, I'll shake them for you. I'll make them snarl like wolves. You merely question their morality. When their morality is questioned, they grow only the more complacent and superior. But I shall menace their money bags. Mm. That will shake them to the roots of their primitive natures. If you can come, you will see the caveman in evening dress, snarling and snapping over a bone. I promise you a great caterwauling and illuminating insight into the nature of the beast. They've invited me in order to tear me to pieces. This is the idea of Miss Brentwood. She clumsily hinted as much when she invited me. She's given them that kind of fun before. They delight in getting trustful, sold, gentle reformers before them. Miss Brentwood thinks I am as mild as a kitten and as good-natured as a st and stolid as the family cow. I'll not deny that I helped to give her that impression. She was very tentative at first until she divined my harmlessness. I am to receive a handsome fee, two hundred and fifty dollars, as benefit. The man who, though a radical, once ran for governor. Oh, that's weird. Also, I am to wear evening dress. This is compulsory. I never was so appareled in my life. I suppose I'll have to hire one somewhere, but I do more than that to get a chance at the Philomaths. Of all places, the club gathered that night at the Pertonwaithe House. Extra chairs had been brought into the great drawing room, and in all there must have been 200 Philomaths that sat down to hear Ernest. They were truly lords of society. I was amused myself with running over in my mind the sum of the fortunes represented. It ran well into the hundreds of millions. And the possessors were not of the idle rich. They were men of affairs who took most active parts in industrial and political life. We were all seated when Miss Brentwood brought Ernest in. They moved at once to the head of the room, from where he was to speak. He was in evening dress, which, I get it, he's wearing a tuxedo, but 
the way they say evening dress, I keep thinking he's like he's wearing a dress dress. And what of his broad shoulders and kingly head? He looked magnificent. And then there was that faint and unmistakable touch of awkwardness in his movements. I almost think I could have loved him for that alone. Hmm. And as I looked at him, I was aware of a great joy. I felt again the pulse of his palm on mine, the touch of his lips. And such pride was mine that I felt I must rise up and cry out to the assembled company, He is mine! He has held me in his arms, and I, mere I, have filled that mind of his to the exclusion of all his multitudinous and kingly thoughts. <laughs> At the head of the room, Miss Brentwood introduced him to Colonel Van Gilbert. Well, that's a lame name, and I knew that the latter was to preside. Colonel Van Gilbert was a great corporation lawyer. In addition, he was immensely wealthy. The smallest fee he would deign to notice uh, was $100,000. He was a master of law. The law was a puppet with which he played. He molded it like clay, twisted and distorted it like a Chinese puzzle into any design he chose. Now I want to know what a Chinese puzzle is. Um, so I just, I'm looking it up right now, and according to Wikipedia, a Chinese puzzle is a 2013 French comedy drama written and directed by Cedric Klipatch. So, now we know what a Chinese puzzle is. In appearance and rhetoric, he was old-fashioned. But in imagination and knowledge and resource, he was as young as the latest statute. His first prominence had come when he broke the Shardwell will. Shardwell will. All right, fine. His fee for this one act was $500,000. From then on, he had risen like a rocket. He was often called the greatest lawyer in the country. Corporation lawyer, of course. And no classification of the three greatest lawyers the United States could have excluded him. He arose and began in a few well-chosen phrases that carried an undertone of faint irony. To introduce Ernest, Colonel Van Gilbert was subtly facetious. In his introduction of the social reformer and member of the working class and the audience, smiled, and it made me angry, and I glanced at Ernest. The sight of him made me doubly angry. He did not seem to resent the de delicate slurs. Worse than that, he did not seem to be aware of them. There he sat gentle and stolid and somnolent. I'm not going to look it up. He really looked stupid. Oh, she's really turning on him after all of his kisses and arm hugging. And for a moment, the thought rose in my mind. What if he were overawed by the imposing array of power and brains and brains? Then I smiled. He couldn't fool me, but he fooled the others, just as he fooled Miss Brentwood. She occupied a chair right up to the front, and several times she turned her head toward one or another of her 
confiers and smiled her appreciation of the remarks. Colonel Van Gilbert was done. Ernest arose and began to speak. He began in a low voice, haltingly and modestly, and with an air of evident embarrassment. He spoke of his birth in the working class and of the sordidness and wretchedness of his environment, where flesh and spirit were alike starved and tormented. He described his ambitions and his ideals, and his conception of the paradise wherein lived the people of the upper classes. As he said, and this is going to be frickin' dramatic, Up above me, I knew, were unselfishness of the spirit, clean and noble thinking, keen intellectual living. I knew all this because I had read the Seaside Library novels, in which, with the exception of the villains and adventuresses, all men and women thought beautiful thoughts, spoke a beautiful tongue, and performed glorious deeds. In short... As I accepted the rising of the sun, I accepted that up above me was all that was fine and noble and gracious, all that gave decency and dignity to life, all that made life worth living, and that remunerated one for his travail and misery. He went on and traced his life in the mills, the learning of the horseshoeing trade, and his meeting with the socialists. Among them, he said, he had found keen intellects and brilliant wits, ministers of the gospel who had been broken because of their Christianity was too wide for any congregation of mammon worshippers and professors who had been broken on the wheel of university subservience to the ruling class. The socialists were revolutionists he said, struggling to overthrow the irrational society of the present and out of the material to build the rational society of the future. Too much, oops, not too much, much more, he said, that would take too long to write. But I shall never forget how he described the life among the revolutionists. All halting, utterance vanished. His voice grew strong and confident, and it glowed as he glowed, and as the thoughts glowed that poured out of him, he said, Amongst the revolutionists, I found also warm faith in the human, ardent idealism, sweetness of the unselfishness, renunciation, and martyrdom, all the splendid, stinging things of the spirit. Here, life was clean, noble, and alive. I was in touch with great souls who exalted flesh and spirit over dollars and cents, and to whom the thin wail of the starved slum child meant more than all of the pomp and circumstance of commercial expansion and the world empire. All about me were nobleness of purpose and heroism of effort and My days and nights were sunshine and starshine, all fire drew, with before my eyes ever burning and blazing, the holy grail, Christ's own grail, and the warm human, long-suffering and maltreated, but to be rescued and saved at last. As before, I had seen him transfigured. So now he stood transfigured before me, his brows were bright with the divine that was within him. And brighter yet shone his eyes from the midst of the radiance that seemed to envelop him as a mantle. 
but the others did not see this radiance, and I assumed it was due to the tears of joy and love that dimmed my vision. At any rate, Mr. Wickinson, who sat behind me, was unaffected, for I heard him sneer aloud, Utopian! Ernest went on to rise in society till at last he came in touch with the members of the upper classes and rubbed shoulders with the men who sat in high places. Uh. Then came his disillusionment, and this disillusionment he described in terms that did not flatter his audience. He was surprised at the commonness of the clay. Life proved not to be fine and gracious. He was appalled by the selfishness he encountered, and what had surprised him even more than that was the absence of intellectual life. Fresh from his revolutionists, he was shocked by the intellectual stupidity of the master class. And then, in spite of their magnificent churches and well-paid preachers, he had found the masters, men and women, grossly material. It was true that they prattled sweet little ideals and dear little moralities, but in spite of their prattle, the dominant key of life they lived was materialistic, and they were without real morality. For instance, that with, with that which Christ had preached, but was no longer preached. I met men, he said, oh, yikes, I just clicked the top of my Kindle to see how much is left, and it says that I have 41 minutes left in this chapter. I'm only at 27%. This is going to be the longest episode I think I'm going to make, which says something about great writing. I met men, he said, who invoked the name of the Prince of Peace and their diatribes against war, and who put rifles at the hands of Pinkertons. Hmm with which to shoot down strikers in their own factories. I met men incoherent with indignation at the brutality of prize fighting, and who at the same time were parties to the adulteration of food that killed each year more babies than even red-handed Herod had killed. Ah, biblical references. This delicate, aristocratic-featured gentleman was a dummy director, and a tool of corporations that secretly robbed widows and orphans. This gentleman, who collected fine editions and was a patron of literature, paid blackmail to a heavy-jowled, black-browed boss of a municipal machine. This editor, who published patent medicine advertisements, called me a scoundrelly demagogue, because I dared him to print in his paper the truth about patent medicines. This man, talking soberly and earnestly about the beauties of idealism and the goodness of God, had just betrayed his comrades in a business deal. This man, a pillar of the church, a heavy contributor to foreign missions, worked his shop, girls ten hours a day, on a starvation wage, and thereby directly encouraged prostitution. This man who endowed chairs in universities and erected magnificent chapels perjured himself in courts of law over dollars and cents. This railroad magnate broke his word as a citizen and as a gentleman and as a Christian when he granted a secret rebate 
and he granted many secret rebates. The senator was the tool and the slave, the little puppet of a brutal, uneducated machine boss. So was this governor and this Supreme Court judge, and all three rode on railroad passes, and also the sleek capitalist owned the machine, the machine boss, and the railroads that issued the passes. And so it was, <coughs> instead of in paradise, that I found myself in the arid desert of commercialism. I found nothing but stupidity except for business. I found none clean, noble, and alive, though I found many who were alive with rottenness. What I did find was monstrous, selfishness and heartlessness, uh, and a gross, gluttonous, practiced, and practical materialism. Much more, Ernest told them of themselves and his disillusionment. Intellectually, they had bored him. Morally and spiritually, they had sickened him. So that he was glad to go back to his revolutionists, who were clean, noble, and alive, and all that the capitalists were not. And now, he said, let me tell you about that revolution. But first, I must say that his terrible diatribe had not touched them. I looked about me at their faces and saw they remained complacently superior to what he had charged, and I remembered what he had told me, that no indictment of their morality could shake them. However, I could see that the boldness of his language had affected Miss Brentwood. She was looking worried and apprehensive. Ernest began by describing the army of the revolution. And as he gave the figures of its strength, parentheses, the votes cast in the various countries, and parentheses, the assemblage began to grow restless. Concern showed in their faces, and I noticed a tightening of lips. At last, the gauge of battle had been thrown down. He described the international organization of socialists that united the million and a half of the United States with the 23 millions and a half in the rest of the world. Such an army of revolution, he said, 25 million strong, is a thing to make rulers and ruling classes pause and consider. The cry of this army is, no quarter. We want all that you possess. We will be content with nothing less than all that you possess. We want in our hands the reins of power and the destiny of mankind. Here are our hands. They're strong hands. We are going to take your governments, your palaces, and all your purpled ease away from you. And in that day you shall work for your bread even as the peasant in the field or the starved and runty clerk in your metropolises. Here are our hands. They are strong hands. And as he spoke, he extended from his splendid shoulders his two great arms and the horseshoer's hands that were clutching the air like an eagle's talons. He was the spirit of regent, regent, regent. We're going to go with regent labor. As he stood there, his hands outreaching to rend and crush his audience, I 
was aware of a faintly perceptible shrinking on the part of the listeners before this figure of revolution. Concrete, potential, and menacing. That is, the women shrank, and fear was in their faces. Not so uh, with, the, with the men. They were of the active rich, uh, not the idle. And they were fighters. A low, throaty rumble arose, lingered on the air a moment, and ceased. It was the forerunner of the snarl, and I was to hear it many times that night. The token of the brute in man, the earnest of his primitive passions. <clears throat> and they were unconscious that they had made this sound. It was the growl of the pack, mouthed by the pack, and mouthed in all unconsciousness. Ooh, three highlighters say. And in that moment, as I saw the harshness form in their faces and saw the fight light flashing in their eyes, I realized that not easily would they let their lordship of the world be wrested from them. Ernest proceeded with his attack. He accounted for the existence of the million and a half revolutionists in the United States by charging the capitalist class with having mismanaged society. He sketched the economic condition of the caveman and of the savage peoples of today, pointing out that they possessed neither tools nor machines and possessed only a natural efficiency of one in producing power. Uh. Then he traced the development of the machinery and the social organization so that today the producing power of civilized man was a thousand times greater than that of the savage. Five men, he said, can produce bread for a thousand. One man can produce cotton cloth for 250 people. Woolens for 300 and boots and shoes for a thousand. One would conclude from this that under a capable management of society, modern civilized man would be a great deal better off than the caveman. But is he? Let us see. In the United States today, there are 15 million people living in poverty. And by poverty is meant that condition in life in which Though lack of food and adequate shelter, the mere standard of working efficiency cannot be maintained. In the United States today, in spite of all your so-called labor legislation, there are three millions of child laborers. In 12 years, their numbers have been doubled. And in passing, I will ask you, managers of society, why you did not make public the census figures of 1910... And I will answer for you that you were afraid the figures of misery would have precipitated the revolution that even now is gathering. Oh my God, there is so much left in this chapter. Okay, I'm just going to plow through it. But to return to my indictment, if modern man's producing power is a thousand times greater than that of the caveman, why then, in the United States today, are there 50 million people who are not properly sheltered and properly fed? Why then, in the United States today, are there 3 million child laborers 
It is a true indictment. The capitalist class is mismanaged in face of the facts that modern man lives more wretchedly than the caveman, and that his producing power is a thousand times greater than that of the caveman, no other conclusion is possible than that the capitalist class has mismanaged, that you have mismanaged, my masters, that you have criminally and selfishly mismanaged, and on this count you cannot answer me here tonight face to face any more than your whole class can answer the million and a half revolutionists in the United States. You cannot answer. I challenge you to answer. And furthermore, I dare you to say, you now, I said that wrong, I dare to say to you now that when I have finished, you will not answer. On that point, you will be um, tongue-tied. Though you will talk wordily enough about other things. You have failed in your management. You have made a shambles of civilization. You have been blind and greedy. You've risen up as you today rise up shamelessly in our legislative halls and declared that profits were impossible without the toil of children and babies. Don't take my word for it. It is all in the records against you. You have lulled your conscience to sleep with prattle of sweet ideals and clear moralities. You are fat with power and possession, drunken with success. And you have no more hope against us than we have the drones clustered about the honey vats when the worker bees spring upon them to end their rotundic existence. You have failed in your management society, and your management has been taken away from you. A million and a half of the men of the working class say that they are going to get the rest of the working class to join with them and take the management away from you. This is the revolution, my masters. Stop it if you can. For an appreciable lapse of time, Ernest's voice continued to ring through the great room. Then arose the throaty rumble I had heard before, and a dozen men were on their feet clamoring for recognition from Colonel Van Gilbert. I noticed Miss Brentwood's shoulders moving convulsively, and for the moment I was angry, for I thought that she was laughing at Ernest. And then I discovered that it was not laughter, but hysteria. She was appalled by what she had done in bringing this firebrand before her Blessed Philomath Club. Colonel Van Gilbert did not notice the dozen men with passion-wrought faces who strove to get permission from him to speak. His own face was passion-wrought. He sprang to his feet, waving his arms, and for a moment could utter only incoherent sounds. Then speech, turning the page, poured from him. But it was not the speech of a hundred-thousand-dollar lawyer, nor was the rhetoric rhetoric old-fashioned. Fallacy upon fallacy, he cried. Never in all my life have I heard so many fallacies uttered in one short hour. And besides, young man, I must tell you that you have said nothing new. I have learned all that at college before you were born. Jean-Jacques Rousseau enunciated your socialistic theory nearly two centuries ago. A return to the soil. Forsooth, Reversion, our biology teaches the absurdity of it. It has been truly said that little learning 
is a dangerous thing, and you exemplified it tonight with your madcap theories. Fallacy upon fallacy. Uh, I was never so nauseated in my life with overplus of fallacy that for your immature generalizations and childish reasonings. He snapped his fingers contemptuously and proceeded to sit down. There were lip exclamations of uh, approval on the part of the women, and hoarser notes of confirmation came from the men. As for the dozen men who were clamoring for the floor, half of them began speaking at once. The confusion and babble was indescribable. Never had Miss Pertonwaite's spacious walls beheld such a spectacle. These, then, were the cool captions of industry and lords of society, these snarling, growling savages in evening clothes. Truly, Ernest had shaken them when he stretched out his hands for their money bags, his hands that had appeared in their eyes as the hands of the 1,500,000 revolutionists. But Ernest never lost his head in the situation. Before Colonel Van Gilbert had succeeded in sitting down, Ernest was on his feet and had sprung forward. At one time, he roared at them, the sound arose from his great lungs and dominated the human tempest. By sheer compulsion of personality, he commanded silence. One at a time, he repeated softly. Let me answer, Colonel Van Gilbert. After that, the rest of you can come at me. But one at a time... Remember, no mass plays here. This is not a football field. As for you, he went on, turning toward Colonel Van Gilbert, you have replied to nothing I have said. Oop, I just bonked the microphone. You have merely made a few excited and dogmatic assertions about my mental caliber. That may serve you in your business, but you can't talk to me like that. I'm not a working man, cap in hand, asking you to increase my wages or to protect me from the machine at which I work. You cannot be dogmatic with truth when you're ideal with me. Save that for dealing with your wage slaves. They will not dare reply to you because... You hold their bread and butter, their lives in your hands. As for this return to nature that you say you learned at college before I was born, permit me to point out, on the face of it, you cannot have learned anything since. Socialism has no more to do with the state of nature than has differential calculus with the Bible class. I have called your class stupid when outside the realm of business. You, sir, have brilliantly exemplified my statement. This terrible castigation of her $100,000 lawyer was too much for Miss Brentwood's nerves. Her hysteria became violent, and she was helped, weeping and laughing, out of the room. It was just as well, for there was worse to follow. Don't take my word for it, Ernest continued, when the interruption had been led away. Your own authorities, with one unanimous voice, will prove you stupid. Your own hired purveyors of knowledge will tell you that you, turn the page, I can do it, are wrong. 
go to your meekest little assistant infrastructure of sociology, sociology and ask him what is the difference between Rousseau's theory of the return of nature and the theory of socialism. Ask your greatest orthodox bourgeoisie, political economists, and sociologists. Question. Through the pages of every textbook written on the subject and stored on the shelves of your subsidized libraries, and from one and all the answer will be that there is nothing congruous between the return to nature and socialism. On the other hand, the unanimous affirmative answer will be that the return to nature and socialism are diametrically opposed to each other. As I say, don't take my word for it, The record of your stupidity is there in the books, your own books, that you've never read. And so far as your stupidity is concerned, you are not the exemplar of your class. You you know law and business, Colonel Van Gilbert. You know how to serve corporations and increase dividends by twisting law. Very good. Stick to it. You are quite a figure. You are a very good lawyer. But you are a Poor historian, you know nothing of sociology, and your biology is contemporaneous with Pliny. Here, Colonel Van Gilbert writhed in his chair. There was perfect quiet in the room. Everyone sat fascinated, paralyzed. I may say such fearful treatment of the great Colonel Van Gilbert was unheard of, undreamed of, impossible to believe. The great Colonel Van Gilbert, before whom judges trembled when he arose in court, but Ernest never gave quarter to an enemy. Sixteen minutes left in the chapter. Ugh. This is so painful. This is, of course, no reflection on you, Ernest said. Every man to his trade. Only you stick to your trade, and I'll stick to mine. You have specialized. When it comes to a knowledge of the law, of how best to evade the law, or make a new law for the benefit of thieving corporations, I am down in the dirt at your feet. But when it comes to sociology, my trade... You are down in the dirt at my feet. Remember that. Remember also that your law is the stuff of a day, and you are not versatile in the stuff of more than a day. (laughs) Therefore, your dogmatic assertions and rash generalizations on things historical and sociological are not worth the breath you waste on them. He's really hooked on sociological and nature. Ernest paused for a moment and regarded him thoughtfully, noting his face dark and twisted with anger, his panting chest, his writhing body, and his slim white hands nervously clenching and unclenching. But it seems you have breath to use, and I'll give you a chance to use it. I indicted your class. Show me that my indictment is wrong. I pointed out to you the wretchedness of modern man. Three million child slaves in the United States, without whose labor profits would not be possible, and fifteen million underfed, ill-clothed, and worse, worse-housed people. 
I pointed out that modern man's producing power through social organization and the use of machinery was a thousand times greater than that of the caveman. And I have stated that from these two facts, no other conclusion was possible than that the capitalist class has mismanaged. This was my indictment. And I specifically and at length challenge you to answer it. Nay, I did more. I prophesied that you would not answer. It remains for your breath to smash my prophecy. You called my speech <laughs> fallacy. Show the fallacy, Colonel Van Gilbert. Answer the indictment. And I and my 1,500,000 comrades have brought against your class and you... Colonel Van Gilbert quite forgot that he was presiding and that in courtesy he should permit the other clamorers to speak. He was on his feet, flinging his arms, his rhetoric, and his control to the winds alternating, abusing Ernest for his youth and demagoguery, and savagely attacking the working class, elaborating its inefficiency and worthlessness. For a lawyer, you are the hardest, so he's not even like there's no counter-argument. He's not bothering to write it. He's just going right back into earnest. Ugh. For a lawyer, you are the hardest man to keep your point I ever saw. Ernest began his answer to the tirade. My youth has nothing to do with what I have enunciated, nor has the worthlessness of the working class. I charge the capitalist class with having mismanaged society. You have not answered. You have made no attempt to answer. Why? It is because you have no answer. You are the champion of this whole audience. Everyone here except me is hanging on your lips for, the ad for that answer. They are hanging on your lips for that answer because they have no answer themselves. As for me, as I have said before, I know that you not only cannot answer, but that you will not attempt an answer. Will he actually write the person's answer? Oh, here it comes. This is intolerable, Colonel uh, Van Gilbert cried out. This is an insult. That you should not answer is intolerable, Ernest replied gravely. No man can be intellectually insulted. Insult, in its very nature, is emotional. Recover yourself. Give me an intellectual answer to my intellectual charge that the capitalist class has mismanaged society. Colonel Van Gilbert remained silent, a sullen, superior expression on his face, such as will appear on the face of a man who will not bandy words with the ruffian. Uh, do not be downcast, Ernest said. Take consolation in the fact that no member of your class has ever yet answered that charge. He turned to the other men who were anxious to speak. And now it's your chance. Fire away. And do not forget that I here challenge you to give the answer that Colonel Van Gilbert has failed to give. It would be impossible for me to write all that was said in the discussion. Of course, they keep... I mean, I want to side with the socialist. I do. But at the same time, where's the counter-arguments? You're not really... <laughs> Wasn't there like an editor that read this and just said, you're just kind of 
M-wording all over the pages. Uh, but alright, fine. I never realized before how many words could be spoken in three short hours, and at any rate, it was glorious. The more his opponents grew excited, the more Ernest deliberately excited them. He had an encyclopedic command of the field of knowledge, and by a word or a phrase, by delicate rapier thrusts, he punctured them. He named the points of their logic, and this was a false syllogism. Syllogism. I'm giving up. That conclusion had no connection with the premise. Well, that next premise was an imposter because it had cunningly hidden in it uh, the conclusion that was being attempted to be proved. This was an error. That was an assumption. And the next was an assertion contrary to the ascertained truth as printed in all the textbooks. And so it went. Sometimes he exchanged the rapier for the club and went smashing amongst their thoughts right and left and and always he demanded facts and refused to discuss theories and his facts were for them a waterloo when they attacked the working class he always retorted the pot uh, calling the kettle black that is no answer to the charge that your own face is dirty And to one and all he said, Why have you not answered the charge that your class is mismanaged? You have talked about other things and things concerning other things, but you have not answered. It is because you have no answer. He won't write any of their answers if they ever existed. It was at the end of the discussion that Mr. Wickeson spoke. He was the only one that was cool, and Ernest treated him with the respect that he had not accorded the others. No answer is necessary, Mr. Wickerson said with slow deliberation. I have followed the whole discussion with amazement and disgust. I am disgusted with you, gentlemen, members of my class. You have behaved like foolish little schoolboys. What with intruding ethics and the thunder of the common politician into such discussion, you have been out-generalized and outclassed. You have been very wordy, and all of you have done is buzz. You buzz like gnats about a bear. Gentlemen, there stands the bear, he pointed at Ernest. And your buzzing has only tickled his ears. Believe me, the situation is serious. That bear reached out his paws tonight to crush us. He has said there are a million and a half of revolutionists in the United States. That is a fact. He has said that it is their intention to take away from us our governments, our palaces, and all of our purpled ease. I wonder what purpled ease means. It's like the second time I've read that in this chapter. That also is a fact. A change, a great change, is coming in society, but happily it may not be the change the bear anticipates. The bear has said that he will crush us. What if we crush the bear? The throat rumble arose in the great room, and the man nodded. Oh, and man nodded to man with endorsement and certitude. Their faces were set hard. They were fighters, that was certain. But not by buzzing will we crush the bear, Mr. Wickerson went on coldly and dispassionately. We will hunt the bear. We will not 
reply to the barren words, our reply shall be couched in terms of lead. We are in power. Nobody will deny it. By virtue of that power, we shall remain in power. He turned suddenly upon Ernest. The moment was dramatic. This, then, is our answer. We have no words to waste on you. When you reach out your vaunted strong hands for our palaces and purpled ease, we will show you what strength is. In roar of shell and shrapnel, and in whine of machine guns, will our answer be couched. Oh, seven highlighters. We will grind you revolutionists down under our heel, and we shall walk upon your faces. The world is ours. We are its lords, and ours it shall remain. As for the host of labor, it has been in the dirt since history began, and I read history all right, and in the dirt it shall remain so long as I and mine and those that come after us have the power. There is the word. It is the king of words. Power. Not God, not mammon. What's, I got to look up mammon. Let's look up mammon real fast. Oh, well, according to Wikipedia, mammon in the New Testament of the Bible is commonly thought to mean money, material wealth, or any entity that promises wealth. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Well, there we go. I just learned a new thing. That's fun. Uh, But power! Pour it over your tongue till it tingles with it. Power. I am answered, Ernest said quietly. It is the only answer that could be given, power. It is what we of the working class preach. We know, and well, we know by bitter experience that no appeal for the right, for justice, for humanity can ever touch you. Your hearts are hard as your heels, with which you tread upon the faces of the poor. So we have preached power. By the power of our ballots on election day, will we take your government away from you? What if you do not get a majority, a sweeping majority, on election day, Mr. Wickerson broke into demand. Suppose we refuse to turn the government over to you after you have captured at the ballot box. These are conversations that have ever happened in the past. That also we have considered. Of course they have. Ernest replied, and we shall give you an answer in terms of lead. This is where his insurance problem keeps popping up. Power! You have proclaimed the king of words. Very good. Power it shall be. And in that day that we sweep to victory at the ballot box and you refuse to turn over to us the government we have constitutionally and peacefully captured, and you demand what we are going to do about it, in that day I say we shall answer you. And in roar of shell and shrapnel, and in whine of machine gun shall our answer be couched. You cannot escape us. It is true that you have read history all right. It is true that labor has, from the beginning of history, been in the dirt. And it is equally true that so long as you and yours and those that come after you have power, that labor shall remain in the dirt. I agree with you. I agree with all that you have said. Three highlighters. Power will be the arbitrator. As it always has been the arbitrator, it is a struggle of classes, just as your class dragged down the old feudal nobility. 
so shall it be dragged down by my class. The working class. If you will read your biology, this is still the highlight. If you read your biology and your sociology, again, biology and sociology, as clearly as you do your history, you will see that this end I have described is inevitable. Oh, good, that quote finally stopped. It does not matter whether it is in one year, ten, or a thousand. Your class shall be dragged down and it shall be done by power. We of the labor hosts have conned that word over till our minds are all a tingle with it. Power, it is a kingly word. And so ended the night with the philomaths. Oh, my Lord. That chapter went on forever. I'm not going to lie to you. I had to hit pause on my recording multiple times because my voice started to hurt. After a while, I was just sort of reading automatically and not really paying attention when I was reading. There was so much going on, and it dragged on forever and ever. A lot like the softball game I went to today, where it just kept going and going and never stopped. And maybe that's the theme for tonight. The theme is purgatory. Sometimes we're always in it. Where you're stuck in something that never ends, never improves, never declines, just is always there. And that's what this chapter was. I'm still cold. Uh, I have to turn off the heater in my place so that it doesn't get picked up on the recording. So it's freezing in my place again. What did we learn tonight? Well, we learned that as an author with an opinion, uh, you can just have a whole argument, a one-sided argument. And when it comes to an opposing opinion, you don't have to research it or actually have these conversations with real humans. You can just say, people got rowdy and started saying things to the contrary. But always, my character won the argument. Uh, and that's all you need, and it's convincing. So there you go. We listen to, or you listen to, a completely one-sided argument for an hour of me reading. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you will be around for the next chapter. <laughs>